Welcome to the Triple F Podcast, where we're focused on fashion, fitness, and of course food. This podcast is all about bringing these three parts of your life together to help you get the most out of your passions. We're here to help you look your best, feel great, and also indulge in some maybe not so hidden temptations. (laughs) We are by no means experts in any of these fields, but we do hope to bring people to the show who know what they're talking about and can help you with some of these aspects of your life. You only live once, so why not live a life worth living? On the show today, we have Vaijanti Vedraview. She helps businesses understand their customers and what they want. Her careful observation, interview, and analysis brings depth, transparency, and perspective to the product, company, customer relationship. This is actual, impactful insight informs product development, design, positioning, marketing, segmentation, and strategy, allowing her to test assumptions about your business with a systematic objective evaluation. Some projects work includes cultural analysis and design conceptualization for navigation tools for the visually impaired, behavioral framework and competitive analysis for wearable technology design for women's safety, display ad response observational research for consumer technology, and user product interaction observational research for consumer goods. Through her work, she hopes to have desperate groups learn from each other and enhance each other's domains, discover unforeseen sources of inspiration for innovation, and to find human solutions for human problems using social science intelligence. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with V of Rasa. So today we're sitting down with my John C. Bedraview, or V for short. <laughs> how you doing today? Good, how are you? Really good. Sitting here at Bites like usual, enjoying some food, drinks, conversation. So tell us what you do in one to two sentences. I am a consultant, but the more interesting layer of that is I am an applied anthropologist, so basically study what it means to be human in different contexts. Right. So you can basically go into any industry and really get to the soul essence of what makes people tick, what makes people dream, what makes people buy some products, whatever you want. Um, but fundamentally, it's really getting to know people. So how'd you get into that? I'm sure you didn't grow up wanting to be the anthropologist. Like, what do you want me to grow up? I want to be a fireman. I want to be a police officer. I want to be an anthropologist. Yeah. Um, I want to be a, a Bollywood star. So that's definitely not what I... <laughs> who doesn't, right? Um, so that's not what I wanted to be when I grew up. But I will say, in high school, I knew I wanted to major in anthropology. Interesting. Because Why is that? I, I was very attracted to just a global arts, music, mm. dance, and, and through that it was a, a window into, you know, kind of the spirit of different countries, different people. Mm. I grew up in the city, I grew up in uh, Lincoln Square, okay. and at the time it was, I don't know what it's like now, but at the time it was super diverse. I mean, we had uh, immigrant families, including my own, from all over the world, mm. so I really did grow up hearing every language, I feel, right. and I, I think that's utopia for me, so I, I said if there's a career that lets me dive into all these different facets of life, different ways of being, mm-hmm. I would love to do that. So I knew I wanted to study it. That makes sense. Like one of my favorite TV shows is Bones. And it's about like an anthropologist that's really good at solving crimes. I bring up Bones. Yeah. And how they kind of dive into all her knowledge of different cultures is mm-hmm. so incredible to me. Like yeah. that's like a side like interest of mine is studying that. I love watching ancient aliens and things like that, right? Nice. So 
plus of my what's true or not true, but it's really interesting to me to see how everything kind of comes together. Mm-hmm. And like when I was in college, like kind of like by side, like interest was like social dynamics, right? Like why do certain people would like do certain things with more like the dating realm? Because my dating life sucked back then, so I'm like, well, let's read these books. <laughs> just will fix it, right? Or whatever, right? <laughs> and so I didn't want to be like, you know, the frat guy that like who does whatever, but like why are certain things happening for certain people or not? And so I probably read 50 books between 19 and 25 years old, like, in that realm, too, right? So it's so fun. Yeah. So what is your specific focus on then? Like, you're doing research and stuff, and how yeah. do you work for you? Well, these days, I would say, uh, professionally, my focus is on larger corporations, more in the fintech space. Okay. It just seems to be the, the type of work I'm getting. I wasn't seeking that, but that's that's the work I seem to be getting. How people think about money, how people think about payments. Mm. Finance is actually very personal, and when you start looking at it like that, it becomes much more interesting, much broader, even poetic, you might say. But um, outside of that, I, I do Indian classical dance. Okay. I'm very much involved in the arts. I love fashion. Mm. So... Outside of what my my work dictates, mm. I do love diving into more artistic spheres okay. um, and really getting into people who, who are doing really unique stuff in that space. So, broadly, how do you think people choose their personal styles? Mm. Right? What's what's kind of that motivation? Like for me, I've talked about this before too in my podcast. Is I remember like when I was in high school. My friend wore like a cool shirt from like Buckle, but it had like a skull on it. And my parents were like, no, no skulls, no like weird shit because they don't need to be goth or whatever. Like, my style was just like, oh, this is like a cool design on like a cool t-shirt mm-hmm. at like a cool store at the mall. <laughs> All the cool kids are wearing it, right? Yeah. But like, for me, like I was super preppy, if you want to call it that, because I was told to wear it by my parents. Well, my mom like chose my clothes for me until I was like 12. But you know, and then. After that, it's kind of how things play out. And I get this all the time from the old ball and chain, if you will. Whenever I wear like a t-shirt and shorts, I look like I'm like six years old. It's so weird. Like, my work Very attire. Tall six-year-old. Yeah, like, my, my work attire is like, all right, whatever. I have like this t-shirt and shorts on, I look like a little kid. But like, how do you think people kind of make that choice and what they want their fashion style to be? Is it, yeah. you open a GQ, it's like you can't buy all those pieces, you can't do whatever, but mm-hmm. people kind of find what makes them comfortable. I mean, you hinted at so many different reasons people dress in certain ways. Mm. Uh, there's fear, fear of not fitting in, mm. fear of not looking a certain way, fear of being uh, disrespected. Mm. There's all kinds. It could be fear-based. It could also be aspirational. Like you mm. mentioned GQ. I can't buy all those items, but I'm going to show off that one item. Everyone's going to know what it is. Everyone's yes. going to know that it, it signifies a certain status. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a lot of studies on even wearing white back in the day when you wore white that meant you weren't a laborer because obviously anybody else who wore white would have a very dirty shirt right? yeah. so if you were you had the luxury of wearing white that means you had the luxury of not doing that kind of work mm. um, another I went to this very interesting fashion talk in New York cool. and there was this notion of fashion as violence and, and some thread of that might be fashion as um, uh, you could think of fashion as violence in terms of just restricting people or, or wearing very uncomfortable things like like the heel you know that's a very contentious issue why do women wear heels it hurts so much it could be considered sort of violent I don't on, know the answer to that I really don't like um, yeah 
but people still like how it looks. And, and then why do we like how it looks? Why do, do your parents want you to wear crappy clothes? It's all kind of learned behavior of what's mm. good and what's not good yeah. in certain cultures. So there's so many influences. There's so many reasons why we wear what we wear at different stages of life. Mm. In fact, I think this year my style has changed. My siblings are like, who are you? You know, yeah. I mean, I'm starting to wear different clothes. And I, I will admit, I work right across the street from a mall, and I used to hate malls. And there's almost no option in I'm living in DC now, but in that suburban part of DC, there's no other options around us for food. Right. Uh, so we go into the mall, and I happen to pass by a store, and I'm like, oh, I'll just pick up one item. And then, you know, nine months later, I yeah. find my whole wardrobe has changed. So you you get influenced by things really close to you and things a lot deeper in your personal history. Yeah, I still I literally have shirts in my closet that I remember wearing them like in college. It's like 10 years ago, 12 yeah. years ago. Yeah. I'm like, is that a new shirt? I'm like, no, I just like took really good care of it and it still does the job. <laughs> yeah. But so like with you, walk me through kind of the research you've been done on, doing on that. Like when you go research someone, how do you figure out kind of the endpoints of that? Like is it... How do you figure out what people's thought processes? I guess my asking, right? Is when you're doing the research, you send out the surveys, or what do you, like, walk me through that, I guess. I'm just not being able to connect the dots of doing what you do and how you get the information. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, how I get, how uh, yeah. I collect the information. I mean, the, the foundation is uh, of a lot of ethnographic research. Okay. It's really diving into the, mm. the culture or the type of people you want to be around. So that means staying and observing and maybe even participating in some of the daily habits mm. of those people or the daily chores or daily work. So in some way, being in that, that's not just, you know, not just taking an hour and asking them about their work, but actually seeing them doing it in context. Okay. That is super important mm. because sometimes you get people... You ask them about work or even their fashion, they'll they'll self-report something, but they're actually doing something else. Yeah. Or um, they said they had difficulty with a certain thing, or they claim that something is not a challenge, and actually that thing will be the most challenging thing, just from you observing, you know, how they interact with people or how they interact with that task. So interviewing, sitting with people and observing them. Maybe some surveys, but surveys are really like an extreme exaggeration of where people can just answer things and yeah. it could be completely false, even when they don't mean to lie. Right. You just, you don't get the, the most truthful answer. I've and definitely filled out things that I put down what I thought they wanted to hear. Like, See? Any sort of test or like the test, like any sort of like thing that regarded like for job applications or whatever, mm -hmm. or I'm taking the, um, personality tests mm -hmm. like well this isn't what my mom would want me to put down for this not yeah. like what I actually think that's, right? that's yeah. so true and there's a lot of people I see them in interviews and I could feel they're almost like sucking up to me like I'm a teacher I'm like no 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 we want your honest opinion <laughs> criticize the product criticize the the way it's presented criticize it you know but you could say that you could say feel free but it's another thing for them to actually feel free so another way to do that is to talk to them multiple times do a okay. longitudinal study or have them 
submit video diaries of using a product or wearing certain clothes, you know, for a week. That gets them warmed up. The seventh, you'll notice a huge difference between the seventh submission and the first. You know, they'll be more articulate. They'll get deeper into it. They're like, oh yeah, you know, I actually realize I do this because of uh, the way my mom raised me, right. and the, I don't like this particular way of doing things. You know, I know, I know, I'm speaking very vaguely, but yeah, yeah. we have to. The, the more, the more time you spend with people, the more insights you get, um, and. There's no replacement for time, and I, it's really awkward because in today's culture, especially when you're doing corporate work, they're like, can you give us insights really fast? And Because we need to act on it really fast. But then sometimes you're like, okay, but do you want really bad information that might lead you astray? Like a false positive? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So how, how does that kind of work out with you? So when you kind of come on with a client, right? And like, when you set the expectations, what is it all about? Like, you come on and say, like, I'm a consultant for you guys. What are they expecting out of it? I know what they kind of want, but like, how do you give them on a time, expectations from the people you're interacting with, mm-hmm. respect from all of you guys too? Like, for me, my day job, like, hey, go meet with this person who's consulting with us. I'm like... Do I tell her what she wants to hear, or do I tell her what I think? And I like, you know, side example, I told her what I thought, what I thought, and then came back to me like, oh, you think this is our company? I'm like, yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, Some people aren't as bold as you. Yeah. But yes. <laughs> no, that's a, that's another great point of mm. eth- uh, being ethical, yeah. being respectful, mm. not throwing anyone under the bus. Sometimes it's really contentious like that. So uh, personally, I don't reveal the names. You know, they could still sometimes figure it out based on the nature of the role. But yeah. I don't reveal names and. Um, what else did you... Oh, it's like how you kind of connect everything with that. So, like, you go on with the client, like, what's yeah. day one to, like, this is your results, right? Yeah, day one kickoff, I think the biggest thing you could get from a kickoff and meeting with the client and having many hours to really get into their mindset, you almost have to do an internal, like, an ethnography or really getting to know the stakeholders. Okay. Because you're... You want to get to their assumptions, the deepest held assumptions and things they hold to be really true, because a lot of times you might disprove that, and it's disturbing for them. And sometimes they didn't expect to be so disturbed that their whole world is turned upside down, Mm. you know? Like, actually the workers don't like the new incentive you gave. The workers don't like this new bonus structure. They really preferred the old way, but no one spoke up, so they all think, you know, we're doing a great job. Um, And sometimes breaking things to them like breaking those things to them is really delicate. So you set that also up front. You say, thank you for the assumptions. Be aware we might challenge these. And then multiple touch points throughout. So you don't talk to them one day and then one month later go into a cave and then emerge with something. You know, it just it makes no sense and it's it's often disruptive because the client themselves are part of the, the whole process, you know, of of the culture that you're studying. Right. So you cannot take them out of it. What we what we call them in anthropology would probably be something we would say they're informants. They're okay. they're our access to the rest of the, the cultural group. So mm. yeah. Well, so like when you're dealing with kind of uh, the fashion aspects, right, and kind of anthropology, different cultures around the world. 
how do you kind of see that people take inspiration from other cultures and apply it to their fashion, right? Forever, like, you know, back in the day, pre, like, internet days, pre, like, travel days, people had kind of their choices. Now people can go do whatever they want and apply it however they want, right? Yeah. Um, when it comes to fashion and taking inspiration, mm. I think it's even more of a we're in a society where everyone's trying to be a brand. Mm -hmm. Even if they're 15 years old and all they have access to is Instagram, they're like, my brand is this, and I wear all uh, pastels, yeah. or, you know. Um, so because we have so much choice, people are really forced in some way to be really unique. Not everyone has that desire or falls into that quote-unquote pressure, right. but there are many that say they have to stand out, and they'll wear things that stand out, and they'll borrow from different cultures and that gets into the cultural appropriation but I've, I've always felt um, there's definitely some boundaries and there's definitely some lines people have crossed with regards to right. respect but then again no cultural group is static and nobody has lived in isolation to the point where they've never borrowed from each other you know so where where does appropriation end you know and where does pure fashion from one culture begin it's it, it frankly it doesn't exist okay. we've all appropriated or we've mm. all borrowed um, and drawn inspiration from each other even if it's just the neighboring tribe or the neighboring country mm. we've all done that to some degree so it's really it's uh, it's interesting to see where the boundaries are and where they aren't and again not to say that yeah. there there aren't people crossing the line and being utterly disrespectful right. so obviously I, I don't think that's well, cool but then again uh, if it's if it makes people happy um, you know there's it's it's a it's a gray area it's a yeah, cause like I think where's a great area that I can think of a really good example is on Shark Tank right there was a designer that came on she's from like Nigeria or Senegal or something right and she's like I'm a designer I'm a designer and uh, all my designs are kind of African like culturally like appropriate right and so let's say the opposite of an African person is like a white female that grew up in middle Wisconsin puts that on people are gonna say like I remember when I was in high school people like oh you tried to be like a different culture it's like at what point is it you're just kind of exploring them and that you actually can just exp you know want to appreciate the other culture right it's it's kind of the same thing with like names of professional sports teams or college teams, right? What, where is that line? Do you have any semblance of like a good rule of thumb where it's like, like if I went to, I mean, I attended like an Indian white wedding, right? And if I was asked to stand up, I would have worn like a classic like Indian gown to the males because all the other males did, right? I would just wear a suit. I wasn't asked to stand up. But at what point is that kind of or what can people use to figure out what makes sense that's kind of safe, but also, like, not going to raise too many eyebrows or cross some drama? I think um, the perfect way to do that is, is to find authenticity okay. in both what you're representing and yourself. So don't... I think if, if you're overly cautious and overly... Like, you don't want to go there and you're going to just avoid all questions. Yeah. That's not being authentic to yourself. If you're genuinely excited about, let's say, wearing that Indian kurta, yeah. um, I, 
would say, yeah, follow that enthusiasm, but follow it into a place where you really do your work. Mm. You really talk to people. Don't just look stuff up. On, yeah. You know, don't look it up on the internet alone. <laughs> but really, again, you know, maybe take a anthropologist approach to fashion and why people wear certain things and how to wear it, and and really rock it. You know, because you did your research, and also. Um, you know, hopefully it's people you're close to, but ask what's offensive, ask what isn't offensive, and and then make the call. You know, some people within a, a similar cultural group may have different opinions on the way you wear things and what's offensive and what's not offensive. And then you make the decision about what feels right to you. But you know, if you're in a if you're in a wedding and you're offending people right and left, nobody's going to be comfortable. You're not going to be yeah. comfortable, and and you're not there for that. You know, so. So, in your regards, like, say, in all your research, right, why do you think kind of fashion has kind of the cycles every few years of people recycling and vintage, quote-unquote vintage? Yeah. <laughs> Is it just because they run out of ideas? It's like they just know it's time to bring it back? Like, I mean, I don't know enough about design to have some, some crazy idea, but I also, like don't foresee people wearing certain things that walked on the runway on the street, right? So there's a difference between what's wearable and not wearable, but also where do you kind of pull that from? Yeah, I honestly, I've been wondering about that too. I would love to talk about leaders. Uh, I would love to talk to leaders yeah. in fashion, see how they create. But some part of me thinks there's there's something. I mean, obviously, we're we're all a product of our upbringing. Yeah. And maybe it's some nostalgia, a little okay. kernel of nostalgia. Because, mm. like you meant, uh, you you specifically asked about why do certain clothes come back. And, and this is me just speculating. Yeah. By no means this is research-based or anything I heard. But I wonder if there's something that goes in the designer's mind and they're like, remember those shoes back in the day, those jelly shoes that are coming back now? Yeah. Those big, big earrings from the 80s that are made of, like, they're bright and big and bold. Uh, they made me feel happy. They made me feel good. And then maybe people of that same generation pick up on that nostalgia and that excitement for, for fashion from when they were a kid. Right. So maybe it's more than what they're representing in the actual clothing. But then the interesting thing I find is when younger generations who've never lived through that fashion pick it up. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's always really interesting. Like, kids who didn't grow up in the 80s are wearing very 80s clothes that I... I to me, it's too much. Like I'm like, didn't we get away from uh, velvet, crushed velvet, and all that? So I, it's coming back with a, a vengeance. I mean, like I just saw a brown leather jacket they wore all, all the time, and people are like, oh my god, it's so vintage. I'm like, yeah, like you know, I, I wore for a couple of years. So I'm kind of over that. Like just like listening to that. It's like it's a leather jacket that keeps you warm. That like fits you well. It's from my dad from the '70s, right? And it's like, I'm not, I, I wear it, like, on purpose, but I don't wear it for, like, when people offer a bio my back, like, every time I go out, right? It's, like, so awkward. It's like, I just want to wear something that, like, is comfortable, I like, and is a little bit different than what's out there. I'm really not interested in wearing Canada Goose right now. <laughs> not that you have any, right? But, yeah. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's just, like, how people kind of make those distinctions, right? But... Yeah, I, um, when you were saying that, that kind of made me think of uh, 
I was watching Chef's Table last night, and is there a new season? Um, there's. I, I haven't been keeping up with the seasons, but this season four oh, seems to be all right. about pastries. Yeah. And I saw the episode from Milk Bar, okay. and there was a lot about. And we've heard this a lot. You know, this is not a very new concept about how when you taste food that was made with love, it tastes different. It just tastes different. Like mm. same recipe, but Grandma made it versus a, a shop made it, you right. know, or something like that. Where you, Grandma's cake always was better. Everything was the same measurements, but somehow. Mm. So I wonder. I really, really feel this, and I'm feeling this more and more. I wonder if certain clothes, like you picked up your dad's vintage jacket. I have a purse that's from a vintage store, yeah. and I've, a lot of people are just really drawn to it. Um, I wonder if there's something about the craftsmanship that, you know, we. This is like yeah. something that you can't really measure and you can't really verify. But I wonder if the way the clothes have been made makes people react to it differently. So right. fast fashion versus craft, crafted, you know, items, or or just you know, who knows what what kind of mood the person was in when they were creating it. But maybe they really loved the piece of clothing they made, and maybe that's why you get compliments. I don't know. I mean, that makes like total sense yeah. to me. Like, it's it's very like. And in general, like, what you're saying, like, this, it's a unique piece, and then it's, like, some people haven't seen before, but then you can tell it's higher quality, or time was put into it from a quality perspective, and so, like, I think that was what catches people's eye is, like, something's a little bit specific about it. Like, for me, like, I like switching out my laces on my shoes. And be like, oh man, like, are those expensive shoes? Like, they're like $25 shoes from Eldo. I just like change the laces to match my shirt, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, and, the, and maybe it's the care that you put in to mm -hmm. change those laces that yeah. people pick up on. Because everyone has judged me for 20 minutes of my life is gone. But. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not, yeah, it's not, like you said, it's not the cost, um, but it's, it's maybe it's the care. And the, there's this whole theory of phenomenology. Mm. And I have a friend who. He studied quartzes and stones and all of that and how people pick up stones and they feel certain vibrations. Right. Um, again, a lot of people don't believe in that, but there might be something to that in, in fashion and everything we kind of interact with in terms of objects. So what's kind of your end game with uh, your pursuits and your day job, your pursuits in the fashion industry? What's kind of the end game for you? Well, I'm, I feel like... Um, I need to change things up a little bit. Mm. I do, and I will always love anthropology and ethnography, but I don't know, maybe it's time to, so to say, eat my own dog food and yeah. and apply some research or do some in-depth research in an industry that I love, like fashion right. or, um, or the arts or some combination of that, and then launch something. I don't know what that looks like yet. I have a million and one ideas, <laughs> and I wish I had like 20 lives to live and I could do all of these things. Um, yeah, dive into fashion, dive into social entrepreneurship where it's maybe recycled fashion or, or maybe it's something with food or maybe it's a crazy combination of food and fashion. Who knows? Um, and it, it has an international scope and an education scope and a poetic scope. I mean, you, you could really go off and, and iterate some beautiful concept, but I, I want to make it happen. I, I know I'm getting a little restless about that. Well, here's a good thing, right? You're sitting there building your expertise, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. I've dealt with a million and one people who have, like, a new app idea or a new business idea or whatever, and then they show up to work first day and they're like, all right, someone else will do the work. 
because they don't know what they're talking about. They haven't done the work yet, they haven't figured it out. It was just some willy-nilly idea. But what I found in like true entrepreneurs, people who are willing to do the work and understand enough of it, to, it just becomes an extension of themselves, not just they are yeah. the person in charge of people, and then you people to follow who are like, I don't respect this person. Yeah. So I've done both sides of that. And <laughs> I, um, I mean, I'm sure some of those uh, really clever but not well thought out apps somehow work, and some of them become successful, or some businesses like that become oh, yeah. successful. But similar to you know the clothes or or food that has care put into it and thought and love versus not. I think it's the same for businesses. Maybe businesses that survive versus that don't survive, or business that they just like stick in your mind, even mm-hmm. if you don't frequent them. Yeah. So whatever I do next, it's going to be something like this. Like this was something I loved since I was in high school, right. and I'm now getting to practice it. And I sometimes still pinch myself and think I'm super lucky. Yeah. But I also want to know what's next. How can I amplify that love, and what, where else can I put this excitement? Right. Yeah. So what else would you like to leave our listeners with before we sign off? Oh, I'm going to sound like such a hippie, but <laughs> peace and love in everything. Uh, people can feel it. It makes a difference, and it has its place in business. And mm-hmm. I think um, I think we need to recognize that more and, and lead a little bit more from the heart versus the head. Oh, I'm all about that. I, so many business decisions I've been a part of, not my own, but people are like, this is a good business decision. like... Not really. You're just justifying it with some random piece of data that I don't agree with. And then I just like, that's not the business anymore. You are feeling it, yeah. So always feel the love. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by our friends over at StakeHall. StakeHall is a social wagering app for the next generation. With Stakehall, you can easily challenge your friends to games of skill or even be a third-party judge between mutual friends. Stake your hard-earned cash, a night out in the town, or even just your dignity. They strive to be one of the most entertaining and most interactive social wagering platform on the market. Stakehall is an app that you download on the App Store. Uh, right now it's on iOS only, soon to be coming into Android, where you can challenge your friends to some fun games. I've challenged some friends to a game of ping pong. I've challenged some game friends to a round of hot wing eating contests. Right now I'm in the challenge of Movember, things of that nature. Absolutely incredible. Ever have that friend that takes a bet with you and then at the end of the word doesn't want to pay up and says, bro, we never shook hands? No longer a problem with Stay Call. You can put it up on social media, share it with your friends, get a third-party judge, problem solved. Check them out at staycall.io. That's S-T-A-K-E-H-A-U-L dot I-O. Or go to the iOS and iOS store and download them. Stay call. Check it out now. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Pod Directory, or SoundCloud. That way, you'll get our latest episodes sent right to your device when they come out every week. For reference, those are all linked up right in the show notes. While you're in there, feel free to leave us a review. If you do, all I can say is two words. Endless gratitude. Writing reviews helps us understand how we can improve the podcast as we all continue along this fun adventure in fashion, fitness, and food.